Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hi and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist Podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo and today I have a really different episode. So I have with me clinical psychologist Dr. Jenny Wheel, who is going to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about who she is and what's brought her on today. Hi Jenny. Hi Tara, it's nice to be here. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I want to talk about my experiences of being groomed and sexually exploited as a teenager, which in the early part of my career did not feel like something that I could really talk about as a clinical psychologist. And over the years, as I've got, I want to say, do I say more senior or do I just say older? I can go with older. (laughs) As I've got older, I feel more like I can claim that space to, to talk about what I went through because I see so many opportunities where it's really important to share this kind of story so that other people can be open about experiences that that they've had um and to protect the quality of of the work that we can do as psychologists um and sorry I'm going to say one more little bit um one other bit is I think unusually for for victims of childhood sexual abuse I have been through the criminal justice process which yes. again, I think is something that isn't talked about very much. And if it's ever helpful for anybody to hear of my experience of navigating that, then absolutely I want to be sharing that to be helpful and for I'm people. So honoured that you felt able to come and do that on my podcast. And we were just talking before we hit record, actually, weren't we, that there is a bit of a movement in UK psychology for people to start sharing a little bit more about ourselves, obviously within professional boundaries, but I think it's really healthy that we can do that and start to demystify some concepts along the way. Do you feel comfortable telling us a little bit about your story so we can kind of give the listeners some context? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. So when I was, when I was growing up, I was big into the arts. I played the piano for years, had a really good relationship with my piano teacher. Um, when I was 14 she gave up teaching and like looking back that was a really kind of significant loss for me um sort of yeah around that age of 14 some conflict at home not unusually I think for for teenagers yes and definitely there was a vacancy then for a a supportive adult in my life um I joined the local drama group um I'd never done anything like that before the man that ran the group started to show a lot of interest in me seemed seemed really kind seemed really supportive um and basically groomed me at that age I had no I had no concept of of grooming and actually it was quite a relief when during my psychology studies I I learned of that concept and it was a real light bulb moment of oh that's what he did because it was it was sneaky and it was manipulative and I was young and naive and for me I think one of the hallmarks of being a teenager is you don't really quite know 
how young and naive and vulnerable you are you you think you know more than you do you think you're more life experienced than you do or certainly that's how it was for me um so I kind of found myself maneuvered into this position where he was he was taking advantage of me and I felt like I'd been stupid for not kind of seeing what he was what he was playing at and by the time it was kind of crystal clear to me what his intentions were and where it was going it felt too late to say no I felt like well I can't say no now because I didn't say no to this bit and this bit and this bit that had already happened there's something about your autonomy consent there's so much there isn't there I just yeah something I said to the police um when we were talking about it is that if I'd been raped in an alley by a stranger I would have known what that was and I would yes. have you know, yeah. very clearly known that that was not right and that should not yeah. be happening but yeah. because I hadn't heard of grooming or sexual exploitation sexual abuse I didn't I didn't see it for what it was I didn't quite yeah. understand what it was and I think that's really important as well so when we're kind of looking at how long we've been in our careers we're similar ages that back then there was no internet no awareness I think you know for younger generations now people are talking about this more aren't they there's more access to information Um, and I'm wondering whether that's a factor in your journey as well in terms of because grooming is not something I was aware of as a a teenager myself would not have been able to spot that I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of people yeah yeah and at the time I I did mention what was happening to a few friends um looking back I think that was a way of kind of testing their kind of get a different perspective on what was happening and obviously my friends were young and naive as well and so they kind of reacted as if it was as if it was no big deal which again reinforced for me this sense of well Jen you've got yourself in this situation um you've just got to put up with it was was the way I thought of it um and again because I was thinking it was my fault and I'd been stupid to get myself in this situation there was no way I was going to talk to any adults about what was happening you know the levels of sort of shame and embarrassment were yeah. were sky high I was so just going to ask about that actually you know kind of what you were holding through that time yeah. after well yeah oh for years after um and again, this is where I, I think if if me telling my story is helpful for, yeah, I, I can think of situations with therapists that I supervise where it's been helpful for me to to share some of what okay. what I went yeah. through to help yeah. them understand the needs of their clients. And if there's people listening to this or aware of any of the other work that I'm doing to raise awareness, and it helps them to make sense of what's happening. If like me, they hadn't understood the concept of grooming and then they're like oh that's what's happening here um yeah to me that feels really helpful because you've mentioned actually because you do some work raising awareness um obviously we want to bring in kind of what happened afterwards and and, and you know a lot later on involving the criminal justice system as well because I think that's important for a lot of people in terms of how much power and autonomy do we have if it's historical um abuse or grooming what are you doing currently? Is that all right to ask? What are you doing to raise awareness? And yeah. I think that's a remarkable thing to do. I mean, the simple answer is not as much yet as I want to be. And okay. yeah. I'm sort of 
yeah, feeling my way into it. It was it was two years in September since the the legal case concluded. Um, and so since then, it's been a gradual kind of, I yeah. think, being more being more open with colleagues and with friends about what I've experienced. Yeah, because going to court was so validating and was really healing in the sense of because yeah. the perpetrator was found guilty and sent to prison that really did kind of affirm for me you no know, people understand that this wasn't your fault people understand that that crimes were committed so that that did really help in being more open because and I still do hold it a tiny bit but there was always a but what will people think and um yeah will it will it undermine people's sense of you is it better to to just keep it quiet so over the last to hold isn't it yeah yeah and over the last year or so I've I've done some work with with the CPS with the police um so the my it's hard to talk about this in a logical order my um somebody else went to the police in 1999 and reported that they had been abused by the same man right and they gave my name as a potential victim. So back in 1999, hey. I spent two 12-hour days giving evidence. Right. Um, just after I'd started my my clinical psychology training, really like not not good timing, really challenging to to go through. It took almost two years for that investigation to kind of run its course. And Gosh, at that stage, right. the CPS decided that it wasn't a strong enough case to prosecute which probably fed into my sense of, well, it wasn't that bad really and it was my fault yeah. and definitely not a, a helpful message to be receiving. And there was also a part of me that was really relieved not to have to go to court um, and not to have to kind of potentially kind of experience those views in a more direct way. Yeah, of course. So I did then just sort of push it to the back of my mind and carry on. But as the years went by, I, because my dad was a police officer, I'd, I'd kind of, he'd heard bits of information and he'd heard that there was somebody else in the CPS that had wanted to prosecute the case. And that just kind of sat in my head over the years. Yeah. And as I got to the same sort of age that, that my abuser was when he abused me, I had a clearer sense of how yeah. vulnerable, how naive I'd been, that kind of power imbalance, the yeah. age difference. Obviously, I could see it in such a different way to when I was yeah. 14, 15, 16, when it was happening. And then I would have been 22, I think, when the police contacted me about that first investigation. So still pretty young yeah. and naive, really. Yeah. Um, and then the Me Too movement was really powerful for me. You know, it felt like there was such a change in the way that that victim stories were seen. So there were there were just a few of these different different kind of strands coming together yeah. that after a couple of years of thinking about it, understanding it differently for myself, feeling like the world was understanding these sorts of stories a bit differently, yeah. I went back to the police and I wanted more information. I wanted to understand what was it that my dad had heard through the grapevine. Yeah. Had there been somebody else that that wanted to prosecute? What was the reasoning behind? all of that um and I had to go around the houses it wasn't easy to find the right person to speak to um and I was literally going through 
the original police force's switchboard and kind of getting passed one way and another. I had one police officer tell me that if it wasn't strong enough to prosecute then, it wouldn't be now, and maybe I should get some counselling. And Gosh, and just what that was like to be in the seat of... Yeah, I look back and I think it would have been really easy to to give up at that point yes yeah. but I think yeah. actually, just looking at the effort the kind of just the physical cognitive emotional effort in yeah facing those calls and and I'm and I'm really proud of myself that I didn't give up that I did yeah. if anything that was like red rag to a bull and I was like right you really don't get this and yeah. it was the it was the CPS that put me in contact with a group called CSARP and CSARP stands for Child Sexual Abuse Review Panel and what I learned is that the the that this review panel exists and its function is to look at cases where it was decided that no further action would be taken okay and they they have two different processes for whether the original investigation was before a certain point in time um, and a more recent version but basically what they do is they they look at the original investigation they they review it they look at is there more we can do here? And if there's a way of prosecuting that, that's what they're wanting to do. And in my case, they decided that, yeah, there were some gaps in the original investigation. There was more they could could do. And so they opened a a new investigation. They kind of re-interviewed me, re-interviewed other victims. Um, My school friends that had reported the abuse the first time she was also involved in this second case they found a third victim but they didn't prosecute charges related to that person I don't don't know the details of what that is but long story short and I think it took I think it took four years from those original phone calls to getting to court um but yeah long story short court date September 2021 um there were four charges that he was accused of, um, three relating to me and one relating to to my friend from school, and he was found guilty of all of them Gosh. and sentenced to just what a number that of was years like in prison. Because I know one of the things we've obviously talked before you come in on the podcast was just what that process was like to you know physically be there, that possibility of seeing him again and and is that something you're comfortable talking about that may be useful for people to hear yeah yeah I mean it might sound awful that it took four years and some of that was due to covid delays with yeah 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 um but and because the original investigation had taken almost two years I was expecting it would be a a long process and actually I found that quite helpful because what would happen is is when I was reviewing my old statement and giving new evidence it would you can imagine it was kind of all in my head absolutely for a period of time and then things would go quiet and it would fade out of my head and I would carry on with busy work life busy family life so it was for me it was actually I think easier to manage it when it kind of came and went like that than right. if it had been okay. like constant for six months yes. or something. Yeah. That's probably useful for people um, to know, actually, because I'm wondering about, you know, what potential barriers there might be to people wanting to pursue yeah. the case, taking it further, but being understandably worried yeah. about what that looks but, like and the impact. Yeah, the first time round, 
and I'd been more impatient and I'd been yeah. you know when they said right we're going to do this bit now and we'll be in touch in two weeks after two yeah. weeks I'd almost be like well you know come on then what's the next bit yeah where this time round, yeah. if they said well we're going to do this bit now and we'll be in touch in two weeks I just wouldn't expect anything for four weeks or six weeks yeah. I think being a bit Did older, that make it more manageable take their time yeah and I'm thinking yeah. you know obviously you mentioned you're trying to live a value-laden life outside of this did you or did you want did you get support during that process for yourself was that offered because I'm sure that's a question that people might have as well so I um I had some therapy while I was going through the original investigation yeah. because I'll be honest, I came out of, I had two 12 hour days of giving that original statement. Yeah. And I think I'd yeah. always been a bit in denial about the impact of what had happened. Really yeah. unsure, you know, had it impacted me, had it not. And I came out after yeah. that second day feeling really quite, quite kind of broken. And I think sort of the impact yeah. of it all had, had hit Gosh. me. So I knew yeah. at that point that I needed therapy and, yeah. Um, I was very fortunate that my parents supported me to access that. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't feel comfortable to go through the NHS as a trainee clinical psychologist, not knowing where of I was course. going to be going on placements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I accessed private therapy at that point, which, like I said, I know that's really privileged and not everybody would be able to do that. And that supported me through the sort of 18 months, two years of that process. And then... It was it was prior to going back to the police that I'd had I'd had more therapy and I'd had more specific kind of trauma focused therapy. Yes. Um around the abuse. I'd I'd had yeah. EMDR therapy, which so not all of your listeners, but you know, some will know is is an evidence-based approach for, for yeah. trauma. It's something that I I do a lot of EMDR in my work itself and so kind of hoped that it would be helpful. And oh my goodness, it it really was it really sort of shifted things for me um and it's I was all the way through hear. all the way through the, the the reinvestigation I was and then when I went to court I was kind of expecting to get to a point where I would need more therapy yeah and I'm still yeah. open to that you know I'm sure I'm sure I will have more therapy at some point in my life but I actually haven't felt like I've needed to yeah. um yeah. There was other support. So the, the police that reinvestigated, I always had like a lead police officer who was my kind of point of contact and would keep me updated. Yeah. And sometimes I would get phone calls of saying, actually, there isn't really an update at the moment, but wanted you to know we haven't forgotten and we're still working on it. Um, so those sorts of phone calls. I imagine really that's nice. helpful as well, just having that kind of, kind of safety yes. key point of contact. Yes. Um, and as we got as we got nearer to going to court um the support expanded um so the police officer was still really supportive and was keeping me updated but then there were also people from um from from the court explaining to me what it was going to be like explaining to be my options in terms of how I would give my evidence so I decided okay. that I wanted to be there in person um I think there was the option to give evidence sort of via a screen but I did decide to be there in person but then we had screens up so that I didn't have to see the man that abused yeah. me, which made it really complicated. When I came in and out of the courtroom, he had to be moved in and out first so that our paths didn't cross. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have to see him because I felt like that would potentially be really triggering and make yeah. it harder for me to give my evidence. So it was it was good to have that in place. 
and um, that level of autonomy as well you know not the kind of black and white either be there or not but you know being there giving your evidence is yes really important, but having that extra level of autonomy other than that well. Yeah, other than that policeman who suggested I have a bit more counselling to get closure, I honestly felt like everybody else understood the yeah. the complexity yeah. and the emotions of what, what I was dealing with. And I felt, you know, people, like the police officer would, you know, he'd ring me to give me updates and he'd give me the space to to yeah. kind of just reflect on what that, what that meant yeah. and what that felt like for me. The people at the court, they would be explaining, you know, this will happen, that will happen. The timings might be this, the timings might be that. When you arrive at court, don't come in the front door because there might be reporters. You know, there's a back door um, and yes. you find it like this. Yeah. Things that I wouldn't have even known or thought to ask. Yeah. Um, there was a volunteer at the court, um, a retired lady who just sat with me in the waiting room and because Gosh. she had grandchildren we'd sit and chat about kids movies and things she did with her grandchildren I did with my kids so just that bit of distraction before yeah. going in to give my evidence yeah. um and she was allowed to sit with me while I gave my evidence and when I when I arrived they oh, said oh you know would, would you like her she's not allowed to talk to you while you're in the court but she can like literally she sat behind Physical me presence yeah yeah and to begin with, I was like, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Like, I don't know this woman. Why would I want her stood behind me? By the time I chatted with her a bit and then they said, you know, time to come in. Would you like her to come with you? I was like, yes, please. Um, and like you say, that just that supportive physical presence. And I think because, yeah, she was an older lady, it just felt like a really kind grandma type figure. Um, that sounds like a wonderful thing to have. And as you say, when you've been through so much where your autonomy has been stripped away but also the, dealing with all those years of shame and the guilt appraisal by others just to have people wanted to care for you really for want of a better word you know look after you make sure you're okay that the process is because it's something that was important to you to follow this through wasn't it yeah um, and helping you do that in the best way possible for you yeah I felt the sense of um I think a lot of survivors of abuse will yeah will think about the responsibility to protect other people who might yes. be victims yeah. of the same abuser. I think I think there's there was a piece of that for me. Yeah. But there was also a piece of just standing up for myself and wanting to say, you shouldn't have done that. That was not okay. Yes. And also um, a piece around kind of border awareness that yeah. I kind of feel like if if and this is a horrible kind of mindset to get into but I sometimes think if I if I was thinking about sexually abusing people if I'm then seeing accounts of people being convicted of those same crimes that might make me think twice yes. um yeah so like I said that's a horrible kind of mindset to to get into but again it makes that's me feel important like thing there's a to bring another in, I think yeah yeah. There's another kind of helpful element to everybody that does feel brave enough to go to court and say, no, this is not okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like kind of, because I'm just thinking as well, if we just bring in your job for a moment, I know one of the things that you mentioned earlier, you know, that you were starting your training journey when you had the initial um, discussions around prosecution in terms of your job, you'd mentioned, you know, whether you were worried about what people may think. Um, how has your career been? How do you feel 
that's kind of impacted what you do how have you managed to kind of make room for what's happened to you in your work earlier on in my career it felt really quite separate and although yeah. when I was training I would people on the course team and supervisors that I had on placements would be aware okay. it kind of felt like they were aware that I was going through this thing yeah. more like from a practical perspective so that if I yeah. had to take time yeah. out to review my statement or to go to court that that was kind of planned yes yeah um it never really felt like something I could I could talk about in depth yes um yeah it didn't feel like there was a space for me to really be thinking about how does this impact my identity as a clinical psychologist how might this be impacting me when I'm working particularly when I was working with children with teenagers yes of course um and you know I don't want to be I don't want to be critical of supervisors I had because I I wasn't asking to talk about it because I I was so junior in my training I didn't know what that was I wouldn't have known how to ask to talk about it or should I talk about it of course so and and my supervisors you know I can't speak for them they may well have had their their reasons as to why they weren't going there um I guess that's part of the thing with training is you're sort of part with university part with placements that's yeah think yeah I'm thinking out loud now I haven't thought about this before but they each may well have thought that the other one was providing a bit more support around that yeah yeah but because no one was was really sort of checking in with me about it it felt like I felt like I had to kind of act as if it wasn't happening um and I felt like I was I was kind of passing I was kind of being a version of a trainee clinical psychologist who hadn't been sexually abused as a teenager um rather than think actually there's a lot of a lot of knowledge and lived experience that is important to to integrate and to be able to think about and that um, it's okay yeah to bring in and think about you know from a looking after yourself perspective I'm thinking but also in terms of what because we were talking just before we hit record weren't we about this in terms of what you can bring, what insight you can bring yeah. to the profession from what you've been through, you know, and that yeah. kind of tying in a bit more with like I'm just talking a little bit more about our own experiences of life and, and, and bringing that into the work that we do and how actually enriching that could be. To the yeah. Work. Um, it was interesting when I wrote my, my victim impact statement, thinking about trying to catch all the different ways yeah. in which, the grooming and the abuse had affected me um and there's kind of fairly obvious ones around relationships and and particularly sexual relationships yeah um and then there was it it really kind of got me thinking about kind of much broader ways about how I used to sort of present myself to the world and particularly in a work context when I was an assistant psychologist and and a trainee I used to find it really hard to talk in meetings. I used to only talk, I was fine one-to-one, um, but I would only talk in meetings if it was like absolutely imperative that I had yeah. to. And I was, yeah. I remember sitting there feeling anxious and almost like <clears throat> building myself up to be able to speak. Um, and I realised that might be surprising because clearly I can talk a lot more freely, a lot more easily now. Yeah. And what I realised that that was, was this man noticed me 
and I think all the way through my kind of university time yeah. I just wanted to be in the background I just wanted to to just yeah be a bit of the wallpaper not stand out um yeah. and this would affect you know not so much in a work setting but it would affect how I how I dressed um yeah how I kind of I wouldn't want to stand out I wouldn't want to wear anything that was particularly sort of noticeable um and yeah I think I think that's where it came from in meetings like don't don't talk don't be noticed just be a just I don't know be a bit player part of the chorus rather than a a main person but how that may then have impacted you in terms of things that you valued doing and wanted to do you know career-wise but also as you say outside of work in terms of relationships I don't know other yeah. hobbies and interests things that you want to want to be doing um, yeah but I think you know sometimes there's a bit of a myth that psychologists we have it all together and we always use the strategies that we know all the time we don't we're human beings with lived experiences um, and I think actually I do think it's helpful to try and demystify that a little bit um, yeah and how sometimes that lived experience of things we've been through can be helpful for us to understand more about the people that we work with yeah um, and what they're going through but it's so is it all right to ask it's a kind of tricky question mm. but mm. when we were talking about some of that stuff in terms of kind of the shame and the guilt what will people think has that ever showed up about other colleagues or how you may be received in the profession yeah and again, I think it would it would be an element of that don't talk in meetings because, yeah. yeah. again, I think what I carried from the abuse was, well, I was stupid. I should have I should have seen what was coming. Um, right. So then that kind of I'm stupid. Character. So again, I'd be sitting in a meeting thinking, well, here's this thing I could say, but probably everyone else will think that's stupid. Probably to them, that's really obvious. That's common sense. They've already thought it. Um so that, it's quite powerful, isn't it? Those that, kind of negative thoughts or with almost core beliefs about yourself. Yeah, yeah. And then those kind of safety behaviours, those sort of protective, well, don't, you know, don't say yeah. it then. Um, people can't think you're stupid if you've not said anything. Um, yeah. And big turning points were, for me, yeah, becoming a mum, yeah. becoming more experienced in my career and starting to notice how people yeah. would respond when I did things sorry when I did yes. say things and how people yeah. the sorts of things that other people so you know not comparing myself to peers in a negative way but noticing well yes. actually I don't think that's a cleverer thing than the thing that I was going to say so maybe my thing could have been a useful contribution um so increasingly I think finding kind and supportive colleagues and friends and holding them close yeah kind of becoming more experienced in my career and yeah the therapy that I started having I also one of my one of my children was born um yeah, with a cleft palate I'm never quite sure how to sort of describe it yes, um yeah. and she was in special care for a few days when she was born she was struggling to feed Gosh. which is really common yeah. with cleft palate yeah. babies yeah. and I had a, a midnight conversation with one of the consultant pediatricians who just said some really helpful words to me where I was asking, well, what about if this happens and what about that? And he said, don't worry, you'll figure it out. You will become an expert on cleft palates. You will always be the expert on your daughter. 
you'll know. And yeah. and then going to, we had lots of lots of medical appointments with her, but going to those appointments and really kind of claiming my power and yeah. thinking, yeah, so here you are, you know, you're a doctor and you're suggesting this should happen. I don't agree based on my research and on my sense of my daughter. Um, so that was really quite a transformative experience for me. Um, and I have thanked her for it. Kind of, I was just wondering, <laughs> that, you know, is that someone you've kept in contact with or somebody who shaped, shaped you in yeah. that way? No, that was, I don't even remember that doctor's name. Literally, it was just a, a brief conversation at, at midnight as I was heading back to the postnatal ward where I had to sleep, leaving her in special care. He was presumably going home after a, a really long day's work. Um, but those words just just stuck with me and my process of I hadn't thought we'd be talking about this at all um but it, <laughs> it's yeah, amazing what it, it does, on a podcast. <laughs> yeah it does connect because I I went from the day that her cleft was diagnosed feeling utterly overwhelmed and I and unable to cope with it to by that evening literally I felt like a tiger I felt I felt strong and I felt right I'm gonna do this we've we've got this and we did yeah I'm so glad you felt able yeah. to bring bring that in it's funny isn't it that sometimes we might know little bits about ourselves but sometimes once we start talking about it we start to forge those little mm. connections and I see that a lot on this podcast so that's why I try to keep it quite organic because sometimes these yeah. things just naturally will yes. come up and that so your kind of journey now where do you see yourself going in terms of because I'm just thinking there are going to be so many people that listen to this going that might be me or somebody I know. I may be thinking about how, especially when you're looking at timescales, if that's all right to bring in as well, that we're seeing a lot more cases in the media, historical cases where people are feeling able and, and being supported to pursue that. Um, but we've kind of talked about some of those psychological and kind of logistical barriers. Um, and I think that story will resonate with many. Where do you see yourself going next in terms of your story and supporting others? I'm not quite sure it and I know this is different from a lot of people you have on your podcast yeah. and I think it's easy sometimes isn't it to compare ourselves to people and you know oh, absolutely, I should, yeah. have, I should yeah. have a clearer sense I should have clearer goals <laughs> yeah. or but I think for me it's it's kind of more organic kind of looking to see how things evolve I did yes. some work last year with um so the CSARP the child sexual abuse review panel yes. um yeah that's I'm not sure if it's linked with or it's part of a thing called Project Hydrant, which right. is sort of run run by the police. Yeah. And they've they've been doing kind of more outreach. They're kind of trying to promote this panel to increase the number of, of prosecutions. So last year I I provided an an anonymous case study that was used on Crime Watch in October um, where they they talked about the panel and they had yeah, my case study. It was a really short piece, yeah. but they had tons of phone calls in afterwards, um, yeah. and not just people with historical cases that they want to report. So, not it wasn't just people that. Well, I had a no further action decision. I want to go through the yeah. panel. Yeah. Sometimes it was actually I've never reported, but I want to yeah. report, and that God, that just makes my heart so... sing. That's yeah. so important that these stories are, are told and prosecuted where possible. Um, 
So that felt really cool to do. I've also worked with the CPS and have have given more detailed a more detailed case study that they're going to be using in their social media. Um, And beyond that, I I think I'm waiting to see what the opportunities might be, see what feels meaningful. Um, I'm wary of not kind of trying to do too much too soon. Um, This will be the first thing that I've done that's got my my real life name attached to it um yeah because I've yeah been a little bit wary of once your name's out there you can't then take it back again like Um, kind of just looking after yourself really yeah and when I'm looking at looking at values and and kind of career goals it's definitely I've kind of got my clinical work that I do I've got my EMDR supervision work that I do and this is definitely another little piece of the pie is that theme around raising awareness and that theme that you've brought in a couple of times already of just doing things kind of organically that seems very much you you know that doing things in your own time and slowly and you know just starting out on a a podcast and we're both fairly local aren't we because you're down in Brighton Mm. aren't you yes Um, yeah um so my my clinical work I when I first qualified like probably like most clinical psychologists I worked in the NHS worked in the NHS for about nine years and then I moved of course into working independently because I found the work-life balance yeah yeah it it fitted better around family life I also saw the opportunities for supervision and continued professional development that that really kind of gave me what I needed um where I, I didn't always feel well supported and well supervised in the NHS yeah. I, re- I really value that about working independently that yeah. I have supervisors now that that know my story that I can talk honestly and openly with um so that's, that's been really a real refreshing blast. yeah um, yeah and over the last the last five or six years I've been working increasingly in sport so working with kind of up-and-coming and professional athletes across a yeah. range of sports um which is really cool and then I do a lot of EMDR supervision as well and just on that it I really like that I know a lot about my supervisees and for me it's it's a really important part of supervision that people can talk about how they're doing I couldn't agree more yeah um yeah so I often know that oh this supervisee's got this trauma in their background or this situation is sometimes difficult for them that you know supervision isn't therapy but we have to be happy well-functioning well-supported people to be able to be good therapists um so for me it's having that space where we can be kind and we can be supportive yes we can be challenging and have you thought about this in your work and we can be looking at blind spots um but really helping people to to feel good in the work that they're doing and to be able to incorporate their own life experiences and explore actually yeah what impact does that past trauma have when you work with a client who presents in this way or that way absolutely it's almost kind of full circle isn't it that just opening up these new I still I'm going to say it's newer conversations in psychology about yeah. our lived experience so how we can inform work with our clients but also that's a really good point isn't it just understanding each other as clinicians are being supported being validated you know when we're looking at all that shame and guilt 
that you held for many years and I'm sure many other people that will resonate with as well how that can be kind of channeled into something really positive and productive for the future yeah so if people want to find out more about you which I'm sure they will where do you hang out how can people find you so I'm not very out there um <laughs> maybe you don't want to be that's okay <laughs> Well, I think I do. And again, I'm still kind of starting to think about what Mind that might way. look like. Okay. So I'm I'm not professionally, I'm not on any of the social medias at the moment, apart from LinkedIn. So um, if people did want to find me for now, LinkedIn is the place. And that is one of my projects for this year is to yeah. is to think about what that I've never used Twitter slash X. Don't know what that looks like at all. Um, so yeah it's a bit of a yeah I guess LinkedIn for now and for, so is that something you'd like to share space. put that in the show notes if it's useful I think so yeah and do you yeah. have a website if people want to find you clinically I don't do I don't um I, t- I had one years you don't ago want people I, finding you <laughs> no well I took it down and I also um when I was married my surname was King um so I changed my name and took my website down but people still find me <laughs> that, that you mean that's before. a sign isn't it people want to find you they will find you now I always ask yeah. all of my guests you know we've had so much that we've talked about if you could leave us with one little adversity takeaway what might that be one little nugget I love this question can I have two yes absolutely yes yes, yes. um Two and a half, actually. I'll start with the half. The I half don't think I've had is... a two and a half before. That's yeah. fair. <laughs> is if there's anybody listening to this or supporting anybody who has been sexually abused and hasn't been to the police, yeah. um, I would I would love them to go to the police and report it if they feel able. And I would hate for anybody to yeah. feel kind of coerced or pushed into doing that. That's um, an important point, yeah. But I would love them to feel that, that they've, will probably be treated kindly and supportively by the police and through that whole process. Um, so I did want to just throw that bit in. Yeah. And then my my kind of main top tips would be, for me, it's all about the tribe. It's all about having supportive people around. And as I was, while I was going through the four years of build up to the court case, I had various friends, family, colleagues that were aware yeah. of what was going on and were taking care of me which meant a lot and then day to day my t- my top tip is to look for the positives every night when I put her to bed my daughter will give me her positive things from the day and I just we, we know don't we from evolution that our brains are programmed to look for the negatives and I just think if every day we can look for three or five positive things yes. um, for yeah. me that just it just lifts always lifts my spirits and I think it's really helpful to do recommend it to lots of clients that I work with yeah absolutely so anyone yeah. listens to this now whether it's day evening tonight we get yeah. to bed or when you get into bed yeah and they're bit. small things aren't they they're not yeah. getting promotions or getting asked out by that attractive person that you've had your eye on it's a cup of coffee that tasted really nice it's yes. the sunshine that we had yesterday it's a laugh that you shared with a friend just. I know mine today will be having you on. I know we have talked before, but oh. um, you're you're fairly local to me, so we must do a dog walk at some point. Um, yes, please. On Brighton Seafront. Um, but just for me, it will be just I like connecting, valued connections. So for me, I'm really 
grateful yeah. a, that we've connected b that i've had you on but that i just get to connect with somebody local yeah likes no I, <laughs> extra yes. bonus <laughs> yes the dogs need to get together and and again it's that for me I, i'm a very intuitive yeah. person and when we spoke before i i felt confident that i could come and and speak yeah. to you about this today and so I wouldn't glad. have felt that with everybody yeah. you know it, it was important to me that I would feel safe and comfortable with you um, oh, I'm so glad that you did so I do want us to to keep talking and keep connecting It'd be lovely we like it Brighton Horsham connections there's lots of us <laughs> yeah yes it'd be lovely Love that. maybe we can talk more about dogs on another occasion as well <laughs> my other yeah. little sideline of me is that wonderful human animal connection um and i just yeah i think it's quite magical especially with dogs I'm a little bit yes there, but, um, there is yes. something quite magical isn't there as yes. well thank you well, so got, much jenny I've it's got been my... lovely because you have yeah sorry you go you have dogs i was you? just gonna say i've got my two dogs i've got my older one who's he's got some bad habits he's a bit of a wally um <laughs> possibly like has his own early trauma and then I've got oh. a puppy who is, she's not even a puppy anymore. She's two and a half, but she is just utterly delightful. She oh. could write a really good self-help book about how everything's exciting. Everyone's your best friend who you just haven't met yet. Um, Which yeah. I just think, is, for people who maybe haven't had experience of dogs, for me, there was just like, there is something quite magical about owning dogs, having dogs and what they can do for us. Yeah. Um, I just, I think it's really special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i totally agree so we'll have to get that dog walking soon thank you so yes, much please. for coming on it's been amazing um oh. and i can't wait for people to hear this episode um and i'm so glad that you felt safe enough to do oh. that as well thank you jenny no thank you it's been great thank you for listening to the adversity psychologist podcast i'm dr tara quinturillo and it's been lovely having you along to listen to this episode if you want to find more about me you can find me at drtara.co.uk so you'll see everything i'm up to my media work my collaborations my clinical work if you're interested in that and of course all the other episodes of the adversity psychologist podcast if you're interested in coming on you can also contact me and let me know what you would like to come and talk about i love to hear from you.